Freeing yourself was one thing. Claiming ownership of that freed self was another. Toni Morrison. Hello there, Five Things listeners. As I'm sure you know by now, we typically bring you the latest and greatest from social media. But from time to time, we bring you topics that are impacting social culture. Before we dive in, I'd like to make note that in order to maintain honesty, this conversation is candid and passionate and will feature explicit language. Our hope is that you are listening with open ears and an open heart. Listener discretion advised. My name is Kyla Sloan, social influencer strategist here at Gray. And today I am honored to bring you a special conversation around Juneteenth. We've had conversations like this before and we look forward to continuing this dialogue again. Today I am hosting two wonderful guests. The first from Gray, New York, Executive Creative Director, Andre Gray. Andre is both an author and renowned creative director that has worked with brands we love, including Adidas, Gatorade, and Nissan. Andre is also an advocate for underrepresented voices and is one of 10 Black ECDs in top five holding companies in marketing and communications in the U.S. Hi, Andre. It's very good to have you here today. Hello, hello, Kyla. I'm super excited to be here. I think this is a very important conversation to have, and, and I'm glad that you know I'm able to lend my voice to hopefully move this conversation forward a bit. Same here. I also have the pleasure of having Rihanna Johnson, VP Director of Strategic Growth at Deutsch LA, joining us as well. Through the co-founding of LA-based Community for Black Creative Professionals, Three is a Crowd, in her podcast, Hex Code Black, which features raw and honest conversations with Black professionals at the intersection of race, culture, and creativity, Rihanna is a proven advocate for empowering people of color in the ad industry and beyond. Hi, Rihanna. I'm so happy you could join us as well. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's an honor that I was invited to this conversation. I'm really excited as well. And I, I really just, I can't wait to bring listeners in on this fruitful conversation today. Today, we'll be discussing five things you should be thinking about as Juneteenth approaches this year. The history of Juneteenth, where we are now, corporatization of the holiday, the future of Juneteenth, and action steps both agency and brands alike can take moving forward. So without further ado, Let's dive in. Alrighty, so as we begin, I really want to jump into the history of Juneteenth. I feel like it's very straightforward, as most history is, black and white, but just in case there are listeners who may not be as up to speed, um, we'll take it back a little bit. So over the last two years, we've experienced our nation's increased interest in the history of Juneteenth and the events that took place. Like I said, for those listening, they may already know, but for those that don't, Juneteenth is representative of June 19th the day when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1865 to take control of the state and ensure that all enslaved people were freed. Little did enslaved Texans know, two and a half years prior, the Emancipation Proclamation, which was written by Abraham Lincoln, had already been instated, officially freeing them. Today in the U.S., Juneteenth is now recognized as a federal holiday. I'm going to just start there. I'll open the floor, and I want to know your guys' opinion about the history of Juneteenth and how we acknowledge it today as a country? Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's interesting just the idea of Emancipation Proclamation being signed and two years later, people still don't know that they're actually freed. And I'm doing the air quotes as freed. And I think it's ironic how 2020, we were in a similar sort of situation of trying to get to a point of clarity and, and racial tension and, and folks feeling very, I'll, I'll use the word awaken to see how things have happened for so long. And now two years later, we're kind of in a situation where we still don't really know what that is, which is kind of the same thing that folks were dealing with in Texas. We're 
yeah, I'm free, but what does that really actually mean? And that's sort of something that's crazy about this country in terms of just saying one thing, but not really knowing what that actually means. And I think for Juneteenth, it's kind of one of those holidays of like, it's celebratory in the Black community as though like it represents freedom and change and prosperity. But then at the same time, it says, well, what does that mean? And what is next? You know? So it makes yeah. me think of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm um, bouncing off of what, what Rihanna was saying. I mean, it's it's so indicative of white patriarchy as a mindset, right? You solve your own problems without empathy or understanding or consideration of other people's problems, right? So you enact freedom, but freedom with no plan, which is actually not freedom, right? You had people that were forcibly in an extremely structured life cycle and environment and and societal structure. And then you said, you know, you're free now. And it's like, hold on, did you make a plan for, for transition? Did you make a plan for their reception? Did you make a plan for teaching them the skills that they would need to be prosperous and to be free? And what is your definition of free? Is free just literally that you're not having someone dictate where you are? Or is free being as prosperous potentially as you, which we all can agree we are far, far from that. Even someone as as rare as myself, you know, as a black executive, I'm still not free. So when we think about this holiday and other holidays, there are different there are different ways the history should apply to different audiences of people, which I think we'll we'll probably touch on in a second. I love what you're saying about just the idea of having a position of influence and power and still not having that same feeling of what that actually means. And I feel like that's kind of what happened over these last two years of you have a seat at the table. It's your turn to speak, but you don't really know what that is. Or you have a team or, or we want to hear your ideas, but you really don't know what that really means. You have resources or we want to give you this role, but you really don't know what that really means. You know, and that's not indicative just to you, but I think the conversation opened up where folks were like, you get a job, you get a job, you get a job. And then what does that mean? What because you already have a perceived notion of what you think a leader is, the same way white America has a perceived notion of what freedom may be, you know, but it's not really explicit in that way. And so I think it's very interesting that, you know, we sit in these seats and sometimes we really don't know what that means, or we have these platforms and we really don't know what it is. Yeah, 100%. And it's a lot about expectation and preparedness, right? Like, especially when we bring the conversation back to corporate structures and to offices and, and company environments, right? You've given a seat at the table, you've given freedom, you've given structural empowerment, quote unquote, but have you changed your perception or expectation of what that role is or what that leader is going to do? Like, the point is not to hire a bunch of non-white cisgender heterosexual males to do as white heterosexual cisgender males. It's to do as themselves, right? Because otherwise you're not fulfilling the original thesis, right? The original hypothesis is you take a classroom and you diversify the perspectives in the classroom and factually, without fail, it greatly increases the education of the entire classroom because of those classical perspectives. But if you keep going into offices and saying, we want, you know, United Colors of Bennington, we want all the people to look different, but we all want them to talk like Todrick. It's like, okay, your expectations are going to force a square peg round hole situation. And they're actually going to greatly limit the productivity and the overall output of the entire group. And to be honest, it's grossly disrespectful. Right. 
Facts. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> no, I think that you guys make really great points. I feel like based on what you're saying, there was a per- perceived idea of freedom when people were actually still enslaved in Texas. So if we think about how that applies today in the U.S., two years later, I think, Rihanna, you mentioned this earlier, you know, as we were talking, there seemed to be this awakening. But is it actually an awakening? We've acknowledged racism, but what true change have we made systemically two years later? And I think that is, if we were to kind of round out what you guys are saying, it, it boils down to systems. Right, right. And and acknowledging how how inherited and how these systems were designed. It's not to say that anyone is purposefully, you know, keeping these systems alive, but people are so unaware of how to dismantle them or what does it actually look like? It's, it's, it's been repeated several times throughout history the same way, you know, when it was a time where kids were, you can now go to any school you want, you know, and what does that look like? Well, now we have to put a law in place to bus kids to different schools. And we all know how that turned out because no one really knew how to handle it. So then what's the new system? The new system then becomes you take certain brain drain out of communities and put them somewhere else. That becomes a new system. I'm saying all that to say that I think we don't realize how the systems have to be tested and learned and pivoted. And they have to be like total disruptions of things. And what I think happened in 2020 was we went in typical, classic advertising industry attitude. We're going to do it all. We're going to change everything. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. I love a challenge. And then once folks got in there and they started to realize, oh, I have to do this in addition to my clients. And that's how it felt. So what systems do I need to change? So now I really have to re-educate my clients on effectiveness, on teams, on how quickly we could get things done. Now I have to change the whole infrastructure of how I've been working for the last 20 years, how I've been interacting, how I've been promoting, who has the most visible roles within our agency. And that becomes daunting, which is why no one really knows how to handle racism in that way, because it becomes, I mean, I feel like gender can be handled even differently than race, has been handled differently than race, because race is such a, you know, it's one of those you know, it kind of comes with capitalism at the same time. That's a whole nother conversation. But I do think that when we start to look at the dismantling of all these systems, it becomes very daunting, requires a lot of consistency, a lot of measurement, a lot of accountability and time. And I don't know if, if we really looked at it from that lens, you know, because we're changing how we work together from top to bottom. And it looks different to everyone. You know what I mean? Some folks will say we have more black people here, but in what roles In operational roles and administrative roles? What, 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 what are you saying kind of thing? You know, so I don't I don't think we've gotten really clear as to what we mean by progress in that way, because everyone else has a, a different definition of that as well. Right. hundred percent. And I think, you know, to add on to your, you know, one of the things I always talk about is racism with a capital R versus racism with a lowercase r. Racism with a capital R is super easy, right? Like, you know, you walk in, what's up, Blackie? Hate you. I'm like, all right, cool. Damn. All right. Message was clear. Got you. You know what I mean? You're not you're not feeling me. Got it. Racism with a lowercase R is is pervasive. It's a it's a Pandora's box in the real kind of, you know, biblical definition. Once you open the door to seeing the world through a disproportionate racialized lens, it's very, very hard to maintain the energy and consciousness to undo that. And the privilege of ignoring it is is something that's very very comforting on the other hand right 
And so I don't know if a lot of people are in it for the marathon that they're really signing up for, which is every single day questioning all the situations you're in and asking if there is a biases to those situations, whether it's how you're acting or how other people are acting. We'll talk in a bit about allyship, but it's like you got to be an ally all the time. Otherwise, you know, you're either for or against. There's no middle. So you're either if you're if you think you're on the sidelines, you're perpetuating racism and, you know, you're going to have to go to sleep swallowing that pill. That's what's interesting. I think that happened two years ago was we were in a situation where everybody was questioning everything, healthcare, where they live, where they work, how they raise their kids, what brands they buy from. Will I die if I go to Target? I need toilet paper. It was everyone was questioning everything. And so to see a man being brutally beaten and killed on television, it really put people in a very like, I can't believe I actually stopped to look at this at this point. You know, because that kind of footage has happened for decades, centuries. Like, I mean, we can go back Rodney King and further, you know what I mean, kind of thing. So people have been taping this stuff for a very long time. But it hit everyone a lot differently this time because they had that, what you said, that opening of the lens. They finally got to open up, like you said, that Pandora's box of like, oh, this is wild. And so now it's become challenging to test that wildness that they saw, that we all see. It's hard to go back. You can't close Pandora's box at this point. Right. You know, what's the big revolution that we're living in? I think when you saw the uniqueness of 2020, which was a real focused attention because everyone was at home, people weren't distracted by gov ball or going to a baseball game or whatever they might have been doing on a, a normal basis. But also you're seeing you know, five, six, seven years into the revolution, which is cameras on phones. I think the thing to take away from that is this movie is not new. Like people used to be like, cool, it's Wednesday. Like what we're going to do? Oh, let's just grab a drink for happy hour at our office. Oh, we got too drunk. I'm not really sure what we're going to do tonight. Oh, let's go hang some niggers. That's what people were doing. So let's not get it twisted that this is new. I think what's new is that everyone can't say, oh, I don't know if that's what happened. I didn't really see. I wasn't there. No, no, you saw the video, right? We've all seen it. We saw exactly what happened. And the distance between the fact that Black people are so viciously, vehemently conscientious of these types of things that have happened to them, to their family members, to people that they never even met, but they feel like they're their own kinfolk every day. And in the bubble, which is whiteness, which is also corporate America, is this in that bubble? You're like, wait a minute, you're dealing with this every day and you're still coming to work and smiling and asking me about my cat and having bagels. And it's like, yeah, because we got to do all of that. That's the tax, right? So because it's mind blowing to you to even think about it, you sh- that's why you should invest. That's why you should ask us to do more because we do more as it is. So allow us because we've been solving problems already to solve problems how we would solve them. Because you might actually find a new answer that would be beneficial for everybody because that's the big, big, big difference. We learned that our only survival in disproportionate evolution, right, aka transatlantic slavery, was survival through community, right? Black and brown people only know survival through community. You have to bring others along. You're going to go get a plate. You better bring a plate for someone else. You got to make sure that 
it's cool for the next person. And that's the biggest thing that's missing from these corporate environments. It's a real understanding that if we work together, we will be more beneficial. There is enough stake for everybody. Mm, true, true. When we raise that scarcity out here. <laughs> that, right. That, that you don't think there's enough room. It's funny because in, in addition to like the Hexco and all the other stuff, I, I do run the, this initiative called Info 13. And it's about getting agencies to increase their Black leadership to 13% by 2023, which isn't going to happen. But it was an aggressive way to kind of get people to pay attention. And in doing that, I really get to see how when I first launched it, it was, so are you saying we have to fire white people? And I'm like, I didn't say that because it's not enough room for what you're asking for. And I said, well, get creative. Start to think about what other ways can other people be a part of that conversation? How can they have more equity? I didn't say you had to fire people. You know, so it became very I could see how some of the conversations were becoming very like it's us or them where there's some kind of some kind of disconnect in our culture of if you're helping one group, then you can't be helping another group versus saying if you're helping one group, the aperture for your lens to help all gets wider. You go, you just by nature, you start to help everybody because you're starting. You can see how how I can help this group. So now I can see how I can help other communities as well. But it was just interesting how the immediate response was, are you saying we have to fire people? I didn't say that. Right. You know. Well, I mean, but you're, you're taught it's a zero sum game. Back to your point on, you know, the scarcity of ability. There's a scarcity of ego driven credit, right? Because you don't remember all Napoleon's generals. You don't remember all the Trump's cabinet, right? You remember the one guy who was the guy. And that's how history is written, you know, by the victors. Alternatively, though, whole communities being uplifted. If you don't need the ego, then everyone can eat and everyone can win. You know, it shouldn't be a zero sum game. The other thing, too, that, that I, you know, frustrated me in 2020 was literally the sentence would be, we had these targets of the last four years in order to change the uh, leadership from a gender perspective. Oh, but I don't know what to do now with the racial perspective. Yes, and you're like, yes. hold on, you set yourself a goals for five years and you had goals in the last five years and now we're 2020. And that's fantastic. Let's keep going. So you guys are making some really great points. And I feel like there is this idea that we have acknowledged racism as a country. But I think that us who experience it, who stand closely to it, who witness it, understand that there's not much that has been done. And I think, Andre, you touched on a few points about corporate offices and, you know, the roles that leadership plays, the roles that our systems play. And I want to get into corporatization of Juneteenth just a little bit because I feel like there is some confusion around what acknowledging Juneteenth looks like. I know we all were made aware of the, you know, Juneteenth ice cream that came out a few weeks ago and was recalled by Walmart. There were some like plates and napkins and koozies with the print, it's the freedom for me. And that right there is just straight up disrespectful, (laughs) but it's also Um, indicative of the fact that not many corporate organizations truly understand, you know, what this holiday means. Because I think we can all agree that not every holiday is meant to be celebrated. And I think Juneteenth is one of those holidays. So I want to get into what companies' roles really are and, you know, how offices can really play into acknowledging Juneteenth a little bit more efficiently. I actually, in my research, saw a study that was done by Nielsen in, in 2014 that read, 55% of global online consumers across 60 countries say that they are willing to pay more for products and services provided by companies that are committed to positive social impact. And then there was another piece in regards to employees that read, it was the same study, but when deciding to 
uh, on where where to work. 67% of employees would rather work for an organization that was socially responsible. So if we're looking at it through the lens of the spaces that we work in and advertising and marketing, you know, we have several jobs to do. We have our offices that we're working in daily, but we also have the jobs of informing, properly informing the clients and the brands that we're working with. So I feel like those are, like I said, two different points of view, but Andre, I would love to open it up to you to just talk a little bit more about the roles that we should be playing in the office. Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to understand your audience and I think it's important to understand the context, right? So for different people, different people should do different things on Juneteenth. Right. There's always a multitude of audiences. I think starting from historical context, let's just break down what Juneteenth is. Right. We touched on it earlier. It is the day that a group of people in Texas were told posthumously two years later that they should have been free and that they weren't. Does that sound like something that you want to celebrate, whether it's with a warm winter salad or whatever it might be? I don't think so. You know what I mean? That that doesn't sound like a, a celebration as such for all audiences, right? Does it sound like something that, you know, one, where do we get to in 2020? Because Black people are like, well, this doesn't sound like a day that I need to be working more, right? So whatever Black people want to do with their corporate structure, yeah, take the day off. Take some time for yourself. Recuperate from the constant onslaught of racism with a lowercase r and racism with a capital R. Now, alternatively, as non-Black people, don't take the day off and sit around and have another three-day weekend. Educate yourself on the historical context and structures that lead to the current inequity and strife of your Black co-workers, right? Two audiences with two different things to do. And as brands and as companies abstain from using it like, right, it's, it's, it's the gap between intention and impact, right? Now, your intention as wanting to be to the Nielsen Studies point, right, equitable social impact first place about values, yes, be that. Understand how you go about doing that because there's a huge gap between what Black people want and need from the companies that they're in and what the companies think that Black people want and need. They don't need the same things as white people or as insert X group that you might have served in a previous situation. Novel idea. Ask the black people at your company how they want you to show up and don't ask them to explain to you why they want you to show up that way. Just do it. Truth. <laughs> no, definitely. I think that's great. And I, I also find it interesting that you mentioned, obviously, that this was something that enslaved Texans experience, right? So as someone who lives in Texas, I'm from Chicago, but relocated to Texas. So in 2020, when all of this happened, I was living in Texas at the time. But as a Black person, I had actually never been educated about Juneteenth. And I would like to think that growing up, my family and parents, and even just the city of Chicago did a really great job of teaching Black history, but that was not a staple topic of conversation. And so when years later, you have an entire nation that jumps on the bandwagon of celebrating Juneteenth, it just kind of feels like something that is, you know, popular to do versus truly acknowledging the meaning and the history of what really happened and, and what was going on. So I feel like it's a little interesting to see and experience even as a Black individual. But I think that there's something like, to your point, something unique about reflecting, learning, and just being educated about, about our history. Rihanna, what do you think? I couldn't agree more with everything you both are saying. And I feel like it only became aware to white America two years ago, when it was almost like Black people were trying to explain their story as to like why this is significant 
in some communities. And then it became like, okay, I didn't know that that's what that was. So we should do something kind of thing. And so then it, it turned into, it snowballed into, it has to be this, it has to be celebratory in this, this sort of way versus a time of reflection and education. And I couldn't agree with that more in the sense of if this is around the time that we've made these commitments and we've made this, I don't want to say pledge, but just like acknowledgement of doing better, then I think companies should show up and say what they've been doing better in during this time and how they have been supporting this community and how you have been of service in a way to this community versus feeling as though it has to be the same experience that employees are having. So I, I think they could take it a little bit in the vein of pause and what have you been doing? And I bring that up too, because with the Infra 13 community, this is our anniversary of when we launched it. And so I always ask for new data, like where are you at with Black leadership? Where are you at with Black hiring? Where are you at with you know promotions and that sort of thing? What have you been doing over the last year to show some level of progress? You know, so I think I think they could even tangibly use that as a time to reflect on what did you do? Right. And where are you at? Almost more importantly than diversity, which is representation, right? Numbers of bodies. Where are you at with sentiment amongst those bodies? Where are you at with how your environments are perceived? How safe are those environments? Are they disproportionate to black and brown people, right? And and how do we start to go at this problem with the rigor with which you argue for the client's perspective in every conversation? Like somehow we're going to forget that we're in a client service industry. Right. <laughs> and that we do this all the time when a client says, I want to sell more corn to millennial moms. We'd be like, well, I need to figure out millennial moms. I need to know where they shop, what they do. What, can I change the packaging? Should I put it in glass jars? What should I do to get moms to buy more corn? It's the same sort of like, what do you do to make sure that your environment is conducive to Black talent succeeding, you know? And to your point, the representation number is never going to go up until people feel safe, they belong, and they trust the space that they actually work in, you know? Yeah, not consistently, right? It'll go up and people will come in and they'll get beat up in your office and then they'll leave. And and that's the whole thing that, that always always got me as well, right? Like 2020, the response was a lot of audits. And like, you know, audits are, are, are good and useful tools, right? But, you know, in the same way that we would argue that, I know Kyla understands this when we work on social business, right? Likes doesn't mean how, how impactful this particular piece of work might have been. We need to measure brand sentiment. So we make the same arguments against representative data to our clients, but we won't do that, you know, for ourselves. I want to know if an environment's a good environment to work in. I walk in, I ask five black people, is it shit in here? And they're like, yeah, shit. And I'm like, cool, audit's done. Mm-hmm. Would I recommend this to my brother? No. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you bring up such an important point, right? Part of the black tax is the disproportion with which we are pressed and expected to bring other black people along and you're like, man, I'm not fighting a Vander Holyfield or or a former heavyweight champion, but I might still be fighting like somebody skinny and lighter weight than me. I'm not sure if I'm going to invite someone into this ring when we shouldn't even be in a ring in the first place. We should be sitting in a WeWork and having the enthusiasm of whatever a co-working space with free coffee might feel like. You know, that's not that's not how it feels. But you're expected to bring other people into that environment. And how do we start to flip the mindset of the leadership to understand you have to prove yourself to the people that are there so that they can feel comfortable inviting other people? 
because there's a lot of situations I might find myself in that I wouldn't invite someone else in, into, you know, my brother or a person that I don't care about, right? You, you, everyone's heard the age old adage, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. I wouldn't wish my experiences in advertising on most people. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy is that it's, it's done with a new client. So what do you, how do you get them excited? They don't know you from a can of paint, you know, and is it money on the lot? Like, what is it that, that is so charismatic about the client versus the talent? So let's talk about that a little bit, because I feel like that's a very true sentiment. <laughs> you know, if you were thinking about recommending a friend to come in and, and join your agency, but your honest sentiment is like, I wouldn't even want to put you through this. How, how do we fix that? I don't know necessarily that the, actually, I don't believe that the answer is black and white, but when it comes to evaluation or if you're evaluating a group of individuals at the same level on the same playing field, what does that look like? Because if you have 13% employees who are black, but 65% employees who are white, and then the remaining percentage other for, for this particular instance, how do we change that? Because it's not that, you know, black folks are less competent. We're here. We know that's not the truth. But how do we change it in a way that feels more equitable on all levels, not just on a pie chart? Right. I think the first key is transparency, right? If you're in an environment that's disproportionately uncomfortable to black and brown people, it is on the leadership in that environment to create the space and safety for you to be able to be honest with them, right? If people are not being honest with you, that's not on them. That is on you, right? That is a flip in mindset, but it's a very, very, very important. How are people creating the space in the conversation to get honest answers? And how are they learning to recognize when they see someone who's being uncomfortable and feeling like they're forced to give you dishonest answers? The other thing that I will add to that is we talked about 13%, but we looked at a, at a, at a pie chart a few days ago. 13% is the national average percentage of Black people in America. We all work technically in New York where there's 23% black people and there's only like 40% white people. So don't, don't set your sights too low. <laughs> Shoot it up. <laughs> right. So where you at? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Get, those, get those numbers up. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, th- I think it's transparency and I think the ownership, you know, the big, the big shift is there needs to be a, a seed change in how people understand transparency. I think there's an expectation. Oh, I am your boss. You have to tell me the truth. No, no, no. We have proven time and time again that for black people telling the truth is dangerous to us, to our employment, to our lives. Right. We got to say yes, sir. No, sir. I didn't see nothing. sir. that's still what we have to say today. So you want us to tell the truth. What kind of assurances are you going to give us that that truth will not be weaponized against? Yeah. And that goes into the idea of at the root of it, black people don't trust these structures at all, you know, and they've never really served us in that way. So by design, it's for you to conform into an already existing system. So it's hard to answer the question because it's almost like depending upon where you are in your life, you may say, this is just a check for me right now, or I'm doing, I'm going to do my own thing, or it's fine for this, or I just want to do that. But it's never really a clear trust of it. So it's very difficult to build that when history has shown otherwise. I go back to the the busing of the schools. Everyone thought that was a great idea and it turned out to not be a great idea. We go back to living in certain neighborhoods and you think it's going to be a certain way and that didn't turn out so well as well, you know, certain colleges or whatever it may be. So it's hard to answer because everyone has such a different experience and where they're at and 
at the root of it, I don't think, honestly, I don't think we really trust these systems at all. And I don't think these trust these systems trust us. Oh, that's facts. Definitely. It's very difficult to to say, you know, burn it all down and start over. And then it's very difficult to say, you gave me a seat. Now just just do just do you. Mm, I don't know about that. It's it's chicken or egg kind of thing. And that's why I feel like a lot of black people are like, I just want to do my own thing or I'll just I'll just try this or because I can fail on my own accord or I can show up exactly how I want to. Kyla, as a person who's relatively new to the industry, how do you feel about the industry and about the potential of bringing people in? Because you know, from my perspective, not to answer my own question, but I really do believe in advertising as a platform because I believe in the impact that it has and the and and the amount of people that it touches. But on the on the other side, I've had, you know, people come into my office and say the N-word or have blackface, you know, in, in my office. I see the pros and the cons. I'm curious what it's like, you know, kind of from your perspective. Well, one of the things that kind of came to mind when you guys were speaking is I know I initially framed the question is like what role should companies and offices play? But It also made me think about, as a Black employee, what are things that I can do or that we recommend? Like, let's say we're speaking to Black listeners now, right, who are having a hard time in the office. I think Rihanna said, you know, a lot of Black people right now are just wanting to do their own thing because of their experiences. But those that are marching forward, those that are deciding to stay in it, regardless of those experiences, it made me think, what are some things that they could be doing to continue? It does get hard. And that leads to answering your question, Andre, about my experience. I feel like being new in advertising, I also have faith in advertising. I mean, I always have. When you think about working in social and more specifically, for my experience, influencer marketing, there's something very unique and very special. But I feel like the systems that have just been created, literal systems that have been created within advertising are what can make it difficult, especially when you're working agency side, right? Because it's one thing to be brand side and everything is in-house and you're working with the same people all the time on the same thing. But when you're working agency side, you have systems that are set up for you to just do your job. You know, a team of individuals made up between account, social, creative, project management, whatever, whatever that scope looks like, and everyone just has a job to do. And I don't know if systemically that is created at the pitfall of Black employees, or if that's just a system thing that maybe we need to look at a little bit more holistically. You know what I mean? Because I don't feel like working at an ad agency, I don't feel like the system is intentionally created for my downfall. I just think that it doesn't take into consideration every human's experience. It's not taking into consideration that I, as a Black woman, already show up in the workplace giving 210%. And so you asking me to do a little bit more isn't just, it's never going to be a little bit more because my mind is already wired to, to take it, you know, take it to the next level. And so when you're doing that over and over again, and then you realize like, okay, wait, I'm a little burnt out, or I don't enjoy this as much, or I'm not receiving as much fulfillment here. I don't think that that, like I said before, I don't think that that is like an, an, the intentionality but it falls to the fate of just not understanding like the people who are working for you and, and their backgrounds and where they come from. So I hope that makes sense. In my mind, it does. You got me thinking of some stuff because what you're saying and what I'm hearing you say is because you're showing up already at 200, most folks don't even realize the amount of effort that it goes to even show up into this. And if we think about there's always been a small percentage of Black people who work in these spaces and have to be whatever that demonstration is, which is that quote of the the struggle is the work. And it's like we we are in it. So it's almost like once you sign up for it, whatever it is, whatever role it is, 
you know, you're in a struggle and now you're expected. You know, it was it was one of the things one of the things I hope very valuable to myself is I know black people are watching me and I don't want to let them down. So that's something I'm carrying. And that's not something that white America is probably aware that I'm carrying that because I want to make sure that I represent well, you know. And so I hear you saying how it's you're already programmed and conditioned because the system is isn't it was never designed with you in mind, was never designed for you to show up with your experience. And now you show up and you're already on 10 every day. And no one really knows how how much you are in the struggle of managing those those worlds at all given times. And I think I think um, I think we have to acknowledge that if we're if we're talking to black people right now and if we're talking to folks, you know, much is given, much is expected. So once you're in this, there is an expectation of a few of us come in and how can we make it better for someone else? And I don't know, I don't know if, if, and I'm not saying that other groups don't feel this way. I'm pretty sure other groups that are marginalized have felt like this as well. But I do think that there is, um, there is an inherent need for that in particular in our, in our career, because our money is attached to it. So you want everybody to get some money kind of thing out of it. You know what I mean? So it's like you, you, you start to process it in a, in a way of like, this is part of my survival now. And now I got to play and then I got to bring up and now I got to bring in and I got to do this and my money's on the line and my family. And it's a lot of things that go into to that thinking. And so I, I would encourage not all black people have to go and do their own thing, but I would encourage folks to stay, but know this is part of the story and it's part of the struggle. You're in it. Once you sign up, you're in it. And it's not a bad thing. It's just you were you, your talents and your abilities and who you are got you to this place. Much is given, much is expected. And you're not going to make everybody happy, but you're going to at least try to live with who you are at your core and be OK with that kind of thing. That makes that makes 100 percent sense. And, and I completely agree. And I think part of it is is also the systems and structures, to your point, Kyla, like understanding who they're employing and what their motivations are and who they're beholden to. You know, I had a, had a conversation. Oh, my God. But I'm responsible to the client. I'm like, I'm responsible to black people like Martin Luther King. No, I never met Martin Luther King. But I understand that to get this brief right to answer this question, especially as we start to try to be more woke and conscientious as as agencies and brands and ask of our black and brown people to make communication and stories that are authentic and true to the struggles of black and brown people, you have to understand I'm beholden to a higher power than what's here, which doesn't mean I won't do 100% right by the client. But it's like, you could never put more pressure on me than I have to put on myself because I have to make sure that there's space for the next person, right? We all have to be Barack Obama in every one of these situations. There is no room for error, right? Error is not even a question because when there's even the slightest misinterpretation, I'm not even saying there was an error. I'm saying when there's misinterpretation, there is a quick reaction of, of workplace mobbing and, and people aligning together to, to push you out of the system. You know, I talked about this the other day, right? Like if you have a concert full of people, you know, and they're listening to, you know, let's say BMX and it's all white people at the concert and they're all singing together and they're all saying the N word. And then you put a black person into that environment. The black person, just by de, de facto of being there, they've now reflected to you what you're doing, right? They become now a mirror, which causes you to feel discomfort and or possibly shame. But the black person becomes the problem because they're so much the minority. Well, if that person wasn't here, I could be with my friends just saying the N-word and not thinking about it. We're always thinking about it. But how are we looking at 
the ways in which we are approaching our black and brown people, are we upset with them because they are a mirror to us of the shortcomings that we have? Or are they actually doing something to actively be outside of the lines and, 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 and the expectations of fulfilling their jobs? And then conversely, amongst black people, how do we create solidarity and community and connectedness and protection amongst ourselves? Because we know inevitably it will be all on the lines at some point. We will be told we've crapped out. We will be told we are too uncomfortable for this system any longer. And we better be sure that we got some people we can call that won't think twice and be like, I know who Kyla is. I know who Rihanna is. I know who Danielle is. I, I, and I know who Joey is too. And I'll, and I'll bring them back. You know what I mean? And that's what we're forced into. We're forced into these situations where we got to make wholesale bets. Think about the pressure that goes on a black person when they hire another black person. Let's say I hire a black creative director and that person wiles out or, or got, you know, or is misinterpreted or God forbid fails at their job. There is no space for black mediocrity, which is by definition how you learn. You have to be able to win and lose. There is no team that wins all the games, but we expect that. Mm -hmm. There is something powerful about thinking about two years ago versus now and Juneteenth and structural racism. It's something powerful about the times in which we live today. Many Black people are reclaiming their time and understanding their power and what, the, what they bring to the table. Because just two years ago, probably a year ago, maybe even six months ago, most Black employees would feel guilty about leaving somewhere where they weren't happy or where they didn't feel fulfilled. Because there's also this notion that we have to stick it out. We have to be loyal. We owe we owe our skills and our talent. You know what I mean? And and I just think that things are they're changing a little bit. I mean, we can see it in the economy. We can see it on LinkedIn. We can see it like people people are if you want to call it job hopping. <laughs> people are putting themselves first in their well being and their mental health because that's another big big thing we haven't really touched on um, is how it affects us us mentally and and just who we are as beings. And so I feel like there has been shifts. But I don't know that those shifts reflect like the entire holistic structure, so to speak. hundred percent. I mean, think about, you know, just from a mental health perspective, think about the tax that's involved when conformity is your best, you know, tool of survival. So therefore, one, one of the other things in 2020, we talked about code switching, right? People enter into workspace environments, especially Black people, and they act like a different version of themselves. Oh, hold on. We don't want, we don't want the, we don't want the do-rags and the Jordans. We don't want all that. We just want you to be here and, and be a little bit palatable for everyone else. Okay, but now knowing that I work disproportionately more than I unwork, even if it's five days a week versus two, if it's 40 hours a week, you know, I, I know we all wish we could do 40 hours a week, right? How long are you being not yourself versus the amount of time you get to be yourself? And what is the mental tax that is put on that until the environment starts to accept the fact that we operate, act, and move differently? And that's actually a great thing, especially in the creative industry. All the creative things that people like in the world, music, films, art, they they, they come from Black people. Well, the, the thing that's, that's interesting about that, it's the culture that people like to make the art with, but the structures aren't really equipped to handle it. They, it's like a disconnect between the two. It's like, I, I want to see the music or I want to see the output, but I don't know if the, the structure can handle the individual or the collective in that way. And that's where I think it's, it's something attached to the structures and money. And, and, and a lot of us have made these choices based around this like survival feeling. And I think, Kayla, you were talking about it a little bit on the idea of folks are now realizing they don't have to stay, you know, and depending upon where they're at in their life, they may say, well, I got two kids in private school. I may 
this day or I may do this or I may do, you know, whatever it is kind of thing. But I think it's it's something about us. We were never valued. We're starting to see our own value and our own worth. And I think there is a movement with it. But I do also think that there's something to being in these structures and trying to change them as well. That's a great segue into what the future looks like because we are the future and conversations like this, they they give context to how we do show up in the future. And it makes me think about, you know, what the future of Juneteenth should or, or could look like. You know, is it reflectionary? Is it action-based? Is it telling brands and, and clients, let's not show up this time or, or let's do this a different way. Rihanna, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on that specifically? Yeah, I do think it's kind of the the reflection of what it is depending upon the audience. Again, like on, it may mean something different for someone else and particularly the Black community versus the other communities. But I do think that brands need to pause and agencies need to pause and start to, I know we love to be about a cultural moment and we love to insert a brand in a cultural moment. And that's our whole shtick that we do in these, in these agencies. But I don't know if we need to look at Juneteenth as a cultural moment in that way. And it's in particular, if it's a time for reflection and it's a time for to to understand better how how the hell can people be freed and not and a group, a whole state doesn't know that they're free. Like, how does this kind of stuff happen? And look at those parallels of how things like that continue to happen right now. I think it's really critical. I love history and I love understanding how things go about. And I think it's really important for us to dissect that time period and see how it's a lot of the same stuff happening today kind of thing. So I think the future of it should be take a pause and don't feel like you have to be it. I go into different stores and it's like I can tell what month it is by the decor. If it's St. Patrick's Day, if it's Pride Month, if it's Black History Month, if it's Valentine's Day. And brands need to really, I get it, to be inclusive, but it don't have to always be that. Inclusive could be you're helping, you know, mass incarceration, you know, or something something else. You're doing things for student loan debt. You're helping people acquire land. Things of the, that nature will go a lot further than just saying, I'm making pies and cakes and all that kind of bullshit. But I think the future of it should be a little bit more of, of that thinking versus feeling like, oh, let's change it. Now it's moved to 4th of July. Now that that's over kind of thing. It comes back to intention over over impact. You know, what is, what is the impact of making your whole store, you know, Juneteenth themed? Does, that does it, it, uh, on a scale of, you know, one to probably piss me off. Like, what are you trying to, what are you trying to tell me? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's... <laughs> that's not going to have the impact that you want to have, right? But whereas alternatively, if you kept quiet or you started programs or you affected and impacted communities and other people talked about it and, 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 and things of that nature, then you would say, okay, wow. So you closed your store on Juneteenth and you hosted, you know, an education session where people came together and learned about the history of an athlete, right? There are different ways to get to the impact. And I think the commercialization of that only makes sense in certain instances. I think the other thing that's super interesting or important for us to acknowledge in this conversation is, you know, this year, uh, as, as, as scheduled to have it, you know, Juneteenth is falling on the same week as the Can Lion Award. As you ask more black and brown people for their ideas and as they want to seek out institutionalized cultural capital in the form of awards for those ideas, you know, there's some stuff that you should just do and you probably shouldn't try to get awards for because it's not it's not don't don't do that. That cheapens your intention. Right. Which now has a negative impact. And, and it's important for agencies to acknowledge you can't approach every problem and every community and every idea and every solution in the same way because everything has its own cultural context and 
if you keep at the top of your mind, who is my audience and what is my impact? If my audience is really black people, how are they feel? Whether this is the idea or whether this is like trying to win an award for the idea. You know what I mean? Let's just say it was Moonlight. And a whole bunch of white people made the movie Moonlight, which could have happened. And it was just as good of a movie. Don't go win awards for that. You should have been doing it for the sake of trying to highlight a, a community that's been historically not highlighted. Now, if black and brown people make that movie, they should go try to win awards for that, for the recognition of the validity of their ability to crack. It's a different thing because you're a different person having a different impact. I've always looked at like the workplace as it's a place you make your money and you deal with a bunch of bullshit because, you know, it's money and it's. I mean, this is, you got to know them. They ain't got to know you. So you better know them kind of thing. And I feel like the shift in our culture has been, which is a good thing. Our culture is saying, brands, if I'm spending money with you, you need to be, you need to have a soul. You need to stand for something. You need to be about something. You need to tell me what you stand for if you want my money kind of thing. And I think the two worlds are colliding when we're trying to give soul to like these soulless places. I don't really know what the answer is to it because I'm like, I see people that sell mayo trying to make like, we are purpose driven. You sell mayo. Like, what are you doing? Kind of thing. I don't know if the pendulum has swung so far to everybody's trying to be like, we have a soul or are we asking these soulless places to develop some heart? It's always been like a capitalist sort of, you work, you do this, you get your money, you, you, you know, and now we're saying, no, that's not what this is. I spent a lot of time here. You want a lot of effort from me. You want this and no, who the hell are you brand or who are you agency kind of thing. So I feel like it's like we're, we're planting seeds to getting to that point of them having souls, because I don't know if everyone really has those souls that everyone is saying they need to have. Any thoughts to that? I think that's a really good question. Like, where are we in the progression and in the changes in which the target markets of these particular entities are expecting from from those entities? I think the way that your grandfather qualified how you go to work is a fundamental disconnect with how I think general culture and white people see work. I am what I do. Therefore, I build community where I work. Therefore, I ask you about your weekend before we engage in what we're here to work on. And I think that Black people have not been afforded that opportunity. So therefore, the response to that is we do not look to build community necessarily in the places where we work because we got to get money. Whether that's a derivative of there not being community that is accepting of us there or a derivative of the fact that most of the time we work for free, a.k.a. slavery, right? And generationally, that's our output. That's a big part of the tension. It's like, oh, but there is community here. Well, there's not a community that reflects me. So if you want all of me, you know, bring your whole self to work. Well, okay, then we're going to have to change how work is creating community. And bagels on Thursdays is not going to do it. That's not what I need. I need you to show up for me. I need you to have respect for me. I need you to come to me for the answers that that we need. You know what I mean? So I think there is a shift in, in, the, in the demand. And I think some places, you know, every day there are more examples and every day there are more success stories. And some places are going to get it to a tipping point where they get it right enough. And it's going to be a vacuum. You know, everyone's going to go, oh, hold on. Why am I working here when I could work at, at X place, which is actually doing it correctly? And I think that the places that are, are sticking the mud, they should be terribly scared. Somebody will accidentally get it right and you're going to see an exodus. I 100% agree. And I, Brianna, to your point, I struggle with work feeling like it's just a job. Work starts to become strictly about income and not about impact. 
that to me is a trigger. I mean, it's something that I think I struggle with because I'm very impact and human insight based. And so when things become really technical and about that before just getting the job done, I think that that's a red flag. And so to Andre's point, if people aren't waking up and realizing that, you know, an exodus is soon to happen or will be happening, then they probably should, because I know that I'm not the only person that feels that way. And it's not because I'm Black. I think it it could be my generation, things that we care about. And I I think it's fair. I think it's totally fair for the amount of dollars you make for that not to keep you somewhere or directly correlate with like retention. Right. And, and, and we don't owe you, you know, that that's one of the craziest things, you know what I mean? Or I gave you a job, you know, or hired you as this and I bet on your potential. I always talk about this 2020, you know, black caucus hosted by Obama. There was a speaker who said, you know, white men are hired on potential and black men are hired on demonstrated ability. Right. So you hired hire me on my potential for 40 hours of work per week. I deliver those 40 hours. There are no, that's a fair exchange in the market. There's no, I owe you or I need to be thankful to you for having, no, I did my job. Well, that's because there's a misconception of black talent. It's like I took a chance and now you need to prove right. it kind of thing. Show me more receipts. For the record, all I hear, I took a chance on you, nigga. Like, that's the rest <laughs> of the sentence. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's not... Act like that's not the sentence. I don't know who's controlling the the bleeps or not bleeps in this podcast, but that's what you hear. And that's the thing. There are sentences that say that to you. They call you the N-word in these sentences, in the omissions of the sentences. We still hear the sentences and we feel the sentences. So don't come with this kind of brand new energy all of a sudden like, oh, I didn't just do that. No, you did. Mm -hmm. You got to live with that. We're all going to acknowledge that. You know what I mean? I love it. Very, very open, candid and, and transparent dialogue. But this is what a this is what a transparent atmosphere feels like. Right. Because transparency, we all know, is rooted in trust. And in order to have these conversations, you have to trust the environment that you're in. So I think it's great. And I also feel like to kind of close things out a little bit, I would love to talk more about action based things that can be done. And I don't mean like go read this book. Go take a walk and reflect on how Black people may have been treated for 400 years. You know what I mean? I mean, like literal action items or action-based things that could be done. Because at the end of the day, we work in advertising, we work in data, we work in metrics, we work in insights. So we're really, we're very capable of uncovering and measuring the facts. And Rihanna, I think you mentioned that earlier. And so when it comes to what can we do, I'm listening, I'm hearing you. What does that sound like? What does that look like? Well, I, I can't stress this enough of treated like a client. If a client was on the table and a real opportunity was there, you would cultivate that relationship to the point of before you met them, you would know them. Before you, you would understand them. You understand their pain points. You understand what, what's co- what they're coming in, the opportunities. And I would say start to look at Black talent in that same way. We have all these metrics and systems and things in place. Be intentional, like we, what Andre was saying. Be intentional about these connections that you're making, you know, and don't think that at first blush, if they don't look like me, sound like me, act like me and aren't a mini version of me, that they can't do the job. Because if you can, if you, if you can really relate and understand people and you can start to see them as their character and their person, then I think that's more important than just saying, what did you work on or what haven't you done? Or, you know, that sort of thing and make it very, when you make it transactional, people can feel that versus you really see me, you really want me on your team. You see my value, you know? And so I, I would encourage people to start to look at it in that same way. I work in new business and most of the clients that leave and go somewhere else, when they go to another place, they call their old agencies again because they're starting new, somewhere new, 
and they trust the people that they've worked with before. So what is that relationship that you've built with that old client, old friend, old colleague that feels like I'm starting a new job at a new brand and I want you on my team? So I would say whatever leaders are doing to cultivate those types of relationships, I would say use those same people, personal skills when cultivating these relationships with Black talent. A hundred percent agree uh, Agree with that. I, I will come to, to, to the answer from a little bit of a different perspective. I think that there was a TED talk at Hampshire College, you know, shout out to Hampshire College by a guy called Jay Smooth. And he talked about most people approach racism like it's tonsils. You know what I'm saying? Like either I'm racist or I'm not, you know, and they equate then, you know, someone to say, hey, you did X thing, you know, that was racist or you might have incidentally did that. I'm a nice person. The niceness of your person has nothing to do with it. Right. It's about the conscientiousness with which you bring into every single situation and conversation, both proactively in the moment and also retroactively. We are all racist to a certain extent because of the system that we all grew up in and the society and the social structure. So we have to think about it less in terms of racist or not racist and more in terms of everything has a varying degree of racism inherently baked into it. And so I need to have an inherent degree of conscientiousness to unbake that racism from the conversation, from the situation. Now, when it comes to being an ally, it's about using your privilege and your position to be proactive in your allyship, right? I talk about that in terms of, you know, the society is like a chess match, right? And let's say that the last move, that's the checkmate, that's success. So any one of those pieces can have success. The pawns can have success, the bishops, the queens, etc. But white, cisgender, heterosexual males are queens. They can move around any place on the board, left, right, and center. As a black person, I'm a bishop. It doesn't matter how many times you try to tell me, hey, the answer is right to the right square. I can't move to the right. In this system as it's set up, I can move diagonal, diagonal, diagonal and come back to that same square, but it's going to take me going around the block, right? But if each piece understands how they relate to the other pieces, can the queen set up that bishop to get the checkmate? 100%. But only if everyone's conscientious of where they can move and how they can move and how everyone can move on the board. And so allyship is conscientiousness actively in the moment proactively in moments you anticipate and retroactively so you can learn from things you've seen and then being in the moment and using your voice when you oh hey i saw x black person was in was in a conversation they made a comment to client and the room was crickets and then todrick right after that said the same exact thing and everyone applauded him i need to say oh hey hey thank you todrick for your contributions i really appreciate that so-and-so black person got us started on that path. And let's recognize that that person, you know, had the, had the original idea. That's great, right? Use your voice, be active, be willing to be uncomfortable as the most uncomfortable person in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I love that because it got me thinking about, I don't know if you guys know who Judy Jackson is, but she runs Culture at WPP. Shout out to yeah. Judy Jackson. Love you. She always says this about, we don't need mentorships. We need sponsorships. We need people to speak on talent's behalf when they're not in the room and sponsor them into a project and use, like you're saying, use your voice to say, Todrick is ready to own that project by himself. Let him do it. And that's more of a sponsor than it is a mentor. A mentor is like, well, let me show Todrick how to do it versus a sponsor says, I'm putting my voice out there to say, give that project to Todrick. That person can do it. And I think it needs to be a lot more of that sort of just being clear, like start giving people visible projects that you may not think, whatever your bias is, think they can do it. Just give it to them. 
and see what they could do more so than show me more receipts. Because that's the other thing that I notice a lot of people do. Well, I had to work really hard and I had to do this. And that person has to work just as hard as me in order to get to where I'm at. And I haven't seen their receipts enough to be able to say they're ready for that project. And so they come into it with a bias of, you don't even realize how I come in here at 200%, like what we were talking about earlier. You know what I mean? And I am ready for that project. But because you haven't seen my receipts enough, because you're judging me based on your journey, you then think that person isn't ready for it. So I think what you're saying with the allyship is really important and putting your your influence and voice out there it, to, to support someone else is very critical. Right. And what is it? What does it say about you? You know, you're like, well, I got punched in the eye 36 times and seven broken ribs, but I definitely want you to have that right. before I let you. <laughs> like, don't you want to make it easier? You need to be punched 37 times, right? <laughs> right. And 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 if you expect someone else to get punched in the eye and broken ribs, you might as well be the one punching them. You are a perpetuator of disproportionate racism. You're a perpetuator of white supremacy. What powerful words. What way to, to, to really bring it home. I feel like, seriously, I feel like what I heard is that the job to do cannot be more important than those that get it done. Like that is what came to mind. And I feel like we, we must stay true to that. I really appreciate you both for being here today. Seriously, it's been a really great conversation, very fruitful insight. And I hope those of you that are listening feel the same. Before we go, I do want to plug our, our guests own podcast, Hex Code Black. Go listen to it. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to podcasts, because I'm pretty sure it's this conversation times a million. I can only imagine. And Rihanna, is it is it is it live right now? Is it out? Yes, yeah, live right now. The podcast is fantastic. It's phenomenal. It is really approaching topics from a cultural nuance perspective and really adding a, an academic rigor to the conversations. I think a lot of these conversations about the status of Black people and, and what they're dealing with, they're a lot based on primary experience, right? What is my experience as a Black person? But they need to always be pulled back to what is the academic structures that are around this. And Hex Code Black, you know, hits a grand slam in, in, in that regard so much. So as soon as I heard it, I called like six people and was like, I gotta, I gotta meet the person oh, who made this. Oh, I because, so love that. You know, <laughs> that's how I ended so, up here. Exactly. Yeah, that's so, amazing strongly strongly recommend i Thank will you. i'll go as far as i'll volunteer to all of you to go <laughs> listen to it, so, oh i sure. love that i love that thank you thank you it's specifically for black creators yes 100 percent. amazing thank you all again for being here those of you listening if you don't already know be sure to follow us share us write to us any questions comments or concerns you can shoot those over to podcasts at gray.com thank you again to rihanna and andre for joining us and thanks to joey danielle and the crew at gramercy park studios behind the scenes special thank this week to john jenkinson this is amazing this is truly amazing we want to have conversations like this next week we will have another special episode around pride hosted by tommy boyce and in the meantime be social The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes with post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.